Well, thank you for the uh, feedback last week to the sermon uh, behind the music. We talked about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I haven't had that much feedback to a sermon in a long time. So thank you everyone for the input. Got some emails and texts and all that kind of fun stuff too. Uh, this week we are looking at Behind the Music Part 2, uh, Oh Holy Night. And a little shout out to my dad, Jack, who is watching this morning. And this is his favorite Christmas carol. And uh, I hope that you are going to enjoy this morning as we dig in and learn the story of how did this song come to be, how did God orchestrate the parts to bring this all together, and then we're going to take a little look at the lyrics as well. And what is, what is the, the beautiful uh, truths in this song? Uh, so the whole idea behind the music, where did I get that? Well, it's actually from a TV show called Behind the Music. It was on VH1, Video Hits 1. And it ran, uh, tw uh, how many seasons? I don't know, 15 seasons, I think. 244 episodes. Uh, it was quite a successful show. And 24 years ago, it debuted with the very first episode. And it was about uh, Millie Vanilli. <laughs> now there's a blast from the past. Look at these guys. That's awesome. Millie Vanilli. And uh, it's the story of one of the greatest scams in music business history. Uh, Millie and Vanilli, whose real names are Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus, they were recruited by a German record producer, this guy, Frank Farian. And the two guys were living in the German city of Munich, and they were in total poverty. Uh, but they were desperately trying to make it as R&B slash pop slash rap stars. And uh, they figured they had it, and they were going for it, and they were going to be the starving artists pursuing their dream. And Farian heard of these guys, and he liked their look, so he brought them in. Now, he had actually already written the song, Girl, You Know It's True. Uh, I have funny memories of this because it all happened around 1989, 1990 when I was in grade 11 and 12. And I remember just having endless fun mocking Millie Vanilli. And uh, so this guy brings him in. He's got the song all ready to go. He plays the demo tape for them. And uh, they listen to it. And he says, do you guys think you can sing this? And he goes, okay, yeah, we, we can sing this. We can sing this. And so they sing it. And he's like, yeah. No, no, that's not going to work. And he goes, I'm going to use some studio musicians and you guys are going to lip sync this thing. And they were like, uh, what? Uh, but they were starving. They had no money. So they're like, okay, sure. And so they record this song and it starts to take off. And really rapidly, these guys become more and more and more popular. And finally, at one point, they come to the U.S., and uh, they did an interview with MTV. And the MTV staff that interviewed them couldn't believe how thick these guys' German accents were. And they're like, wait a second, like, how do they sound like that when we talk to them? And how do they sound like they have no accent on the record? Something's going on here, like, something's up. And then there was rumors, and then they did this concert in a place called Bristol, Connecticut. And as they're on stage, they gets to the chorus, and the thing glitches. 
And so the guy's singing, and it's, girl, you know it, girl, you know it, girl, you know it. It started glitching over and over. He was so embarrassed, he ran off the stage. And the other guy, Vanilli, standing there, uh, <laughs> that really started to clue people in. And uh, by February, they received a Grammy Award. Can you believe this? And their album was just going berserk. It was selling tons of copies. And there was a reporter from the LA Times. And he finally cornered them. And he's like, what about this? What about this? How is this working? And they finally like, we admit it. We're not singing on the album. It's backup singers, all this kind of stuff. They end up giving the Grammy back. And the whole thing came crashing down. Well, that story was so compelling for this TV show behind the music that it kind of launched that show and went on to a long, long run of 244 shows. So today we're looking at the story behind the music of Oh Holy Night. Don't worry, no lip syncing involved whatsoever. Uh, And this story is equally as fascinating as Millie Vanilli because it involves a socialist, an American Unitarian minister, and a dude with a missing hand. It's a pretty crazy story. So we are going to start with the story uh, with this guy. His name is Placide Capo. And we're going to throw his little picture up there. Now, I want you to look closely at that picture, that old, old picture. What do you notice? He is missing a hand. Really interesting. He was had an accident when he was eight years old, and he was playing with his best friend, and they were playing with a gun. And the friend accidentally fired the gun. It shot him in his hand. And being the early 19th century, the early 1800s, they couldn't save the hand, and they ended up amputating his hand. And the family of, this, of his friend felt so bad, they ended up pl- paying for Placide Capot's education. And he was quite a bright young guy. And he eventually went on to be accepted at the College Royal d'Avignon. And while there, despite his disability, he was awarded the first prize for drawing for art in the school in 1825. Then he studied in Nimes, where he received a bachelor's degree in literature. This guy just absolutely loved literature. And then he went on to study law in Paris and was awarded a license to practice law. And then once he graduated with a law degree, he kind of had a choice. He's like, okay, what am I going to go into? Am I going to go into law? Uh, His dad was actually a winemaker. In the French tradition, the guy built oak barrels. He had a vineyard. He he was a vinter and uh, made amazing wine. And finally, Placide Capo was like, you know what? I know the law. I know all the legal aspects of it, and I grew up knowing winemaking. You know what? I'm going to be the guy who sells the wine. And so he had this very successful business uh, selling wine and oak barrels and all this kind of stuff. But his true heart, his true passion was literature. And in 1843, Placide was approached by the Roman Catholic priest of his church in Roquemoray in France, where he occasionally attended. And the priest said, look, we've just had our pipe organ, this massive, beautiful instrument. It's just been completely refurbished. 
It's taken years, all this money, and it's totally ready for Christmas Eve this year. And we, he said, we know you are an amazing literary uh, genius. Would you write a poem for the church for Christmas Eve? And uh, he was like, yeah, I would be honored to do that. And so he, he spent several weeks, several months uh, collecting his thoughts. And then he had to take a trip uh, all the way up to Paris. And he had lots of time in the back of the uh, wagon, I guess, or the chariot or whatever he was riding in. And uh, he had lots of time and he thought, you know what, I'm going to coalesce these thoughts and he actually wrote the words, mostly that we sing today of O Holy Night, on that trip to Paris. He had been thinking about it for a long time, and it all kind of came together. Now, Placide was sporadic in his church attendance, and he had already become dismayed by the situation of the Roman Catholic Church in France at that point in history. You'll remember Napoleon, the famous French general, he had tried to attack Russia in winter. Never a good idea. That's just like one of the laws of life. Don't attack Russia in the winter. You will always fail. And uh, so Napoleon's army for the very first time was crushed, defeated. And all these poor French soldiers that were wounded, that they themselves missing arms, limbs, hands, legs, uh, eyes, different things, they slowly made their way back to France. And instead of kind of treating these guys as, as war heroes or soldiers that needed to be cared for, or at the very least retrained for another occupation, both the French government and the French Catholic Church just kind of said, well, I don't know, it's your problem. And so there was tons of these veterans uh, that were just reduced to poverty. And as Placide grew up, right during that era, he interacted with a lot of these men. And then losing his own hand at age eight, I think, made him very sympathetic to the plight of all these poor and wounded soldiers. And then he looked around and he realized, you know what, even within the greater uh, scope of our country of France, there are a lot of poor people. Yes, there's a lot of rich, but there's a lot of poor as well. And he became very disenchanted with the church and he became vocal in his criticism of the clergy, the priests and the bishops. And uh, he was attracted more and more to socialism, the idea that you could tax the rich and that you could even things out uh, and look after the poor. And so, but when he was asked to write the words to the poem, he was still attending sporadically. And so he, uh, he did that. And so, Almost right away, people loved the poem that he had written. In French, uh, it's not a direct translation, it had a different name. In English, we call it O Holy Night. In French, it's called the Cantique de Noël, uh, the Canticle of Christmas, of Noah of Christmas. So Placide uh, wrote this poem. It immediately started to catch on. He started in that one little church in Roquemoray, France, and it quickly spread. It started spreading to all these different Roman Catholic churches. So by the next year, it was in a large amount of churches. And Placide was starting to get a lot of feedback. People was like, wow, you wrote this. It's beautiful. We love it. And he thought, you know what? I think it's not just a poem. It needs some music behind it. And he thought, it really needs a master musician's hand. And he thought of his friend, Composer Adolf Charles Adams. 
And so he showed him the poem. He said, this is the poem I wrote last year. It's starting to be used in lots of churches. People seem to really like it. Would you be able to set it to music? Now, this guy was a pretty famous composer in his day, especially around the city of Paris. He composed lots of music for ballets and operas, uh, especially the opera or the ballet Giselle. Uh, that was one of his more famous ones, and it became very popular. It was performed all over from Moscow, uh, all through Europe, even to the States. And Adams himself was actually Jewish, and he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. But because of his friendship with his good friend, Placide, uh, he wrote the music for Cantique de Noël. And it was actually first performed in 1847 by the opera singer Emily Laurie. And she was apparently amazing. And that just kind of put it in the consciousness of the country. And this song just took off. All of a sudden, the French people kind of just said, wow, we love this. We love this song. We love that it was written by a French man. We love that the music was composed by a Frenchman. Uh, we are proud of this song. And it almost kind of took on this little bit nationalistic thing, like, wow, we're so proud of this amazing song. And at the same time, Placide was becoming more and more disenchanted, more vocal in his criticism of the bishops and the priests in the Roman Catholic Church. And so finally, the church said, wait a second, what's going on here? We have a song written by a lapsed Christian who's now become much more of a socialist. He's pretty critical of the church. And we found out that the song is written by a Jewish guy who doesn't actually believe Jesus was the Messiah. You know what? We are going to ban it. And so they attempted to ban O Holy Night. That almost seems comical at this point. But the French people just said, mm -hmm, that's nice. We're not listening to that. And they began to sing it in their homes. They brought words home. They put them up all over. It became a thing to kind of put the lyrics up in like a petty point and embroidery on your, on your wall. And it just really, really spread. And so by 1855, there was an American music critic and Unitarian minister by the name of John Sullivan Dwight. And he heard this song. He obviously could speak French. He, he had learned French. He, he loved the music, and then he listened to the lyrics, and he thought, wow, this actually has some amazing lyrics. And so he sat down to translate it into English. And he made just a couple little minor changes. He changed the title, obviously, from Cantique de Noel to O Holy Night. And he changed this one line. It had originally said, people, kneel down, await your deliverance, Christmas. Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Not a bad line, but he changed it to, O night divine, the night when Christ was born. And probably an upgrade. It's, it flows a little better. Now, if you've never heard of the Unitarian Church, you might think, what is the deal there? What, what's a Unitarian? Well, they're essentially kind of a, uh, an offshoot of the Christian faith that denies the Trinity. They believe that there's one solitary God and that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not God. And so that's obviously a radical departure from Christian belief. And uh, it is amazing to me that this guy was a Unitarian minister and yet he actually faithfully translated 
the lyrics. He didn't try to change anything to become more Unitarian. Unitarians are very famous because when you go to talk to one of them, they're extremely like a marshmallow. When, When you go to ask them about, like, tell me about Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's kind of like, and they just go on and on. And at the end, you're like, I heard a lot of words, but I'm totally confused. And uh, so they sort of have this reputation. So there's an old joke that says, what do you get when you cross a Jehovah Witness with a Unitarian? Someone who's knocking at your door and doesn't know why. So it's interesting that this was the guy who translated the lyrics to O Holy Night. But we have to give him his props. He did a fantastic job and probably improved the song slightly. Um, I don't really have an explanation for why or how he did that, but it's an amazing act of God. And I got Candace this week just to type in, Oh, Holy Night in other languages. And of course, it is all over the world. I love this slide. But all the different names of Oh, Holy Night. Oh, Heilige Nacht in German, and then Hebrew, Russian, Spanish, Chinese, Ukrainian, Korean, Italian, Turkish. Amazing. This song has spread all over the world. Now, there's one last piece of that story, but I'm going to tell you at the very end of the sermon about it. But right now, we're going to jump into our second point, uh, the insightful lyrics. All right. As you know, the familiar lyrics of O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Some brilliantly written lines. And it is, in fact, the dear Savior's birth that offers rescue to our world, which does lay in sin and error pining. I was thinking about that, and all of a sudden that that prophecy in Isaiah came to mind. 800 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah, God used Isaiah to give this future prediction. He said, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Amazing prophecy, and and you can just feel the longing as, as Placide Capo captured in the lyrics, the world lay in sin and error pining, waiting, longing for rescue, for relief. And if you think about it, the ancient world was not idyllic. Warfare, disease, danger, starvation were pretty much the common realities for the people of Isaiah's day. You didn't have to convince anyone in that day and age that sin and evil were reality. They saw it, they experienced it each and every day. In one of the four accounts of Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, we see the fulfillment of of that prophecy in Isaiah, Matthew 4, 12 to 17. When Jesus had heard that John had been put in prison, 
he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what is said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Amazing. Amazing to see that prophecy, the fulfillment, the longing. And that's what Placide Capo was referring to in those lyrics. I really like the line, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You know, the gods and goddesses of the ancient world did not profess to love people. They just simply used human beings for selfish ends. In return, people didn't love the gods. They didn't love Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite or Marduk or any of those ancient gods. They just simply attempted to barter with them and manipulate them or buy them off with sacrifices to get what they wanted and needed. And then along comes Jesus And everywhere Jesus went, Jesus loved people. He told them that in his words. And he backed it up with his amazing actions. Jesus healed people. He brought wholeness. He brought forgiveness. He brought love. And our friend Placide Capo was correct. With the coming of Jesus, the soul, really for the first time in human history, did feel its worth. For the past 2,000 years, anyone who has turned to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance has gained an incredible personal feeling and knowledge of his love for them. My soul, your soul, it does feel the worth. It feels the value because of Jesus. And then the lyrics go on. It's the birth of Jesus that gives a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. You almost think Placide was a little bit of a prophet. Did he look ahead to 2019, 2021, where we're, the whole world's weary of the pandemic and all the other craziness going on? And all of a sudden, you, you start to get a warm feeling about this song, and it all sounds so amazing, so comforting, so hope-instilling. But then doubts and, and skepticism jump into our minds. And we ask the question, is the whole Christmas message of Jesus being born actually true? Am I crazy to be thinking this, to be believing this? Now, a guy like British atheist Richard Dawkins would heartily applaud those uh, kind of questions and those doubts. He says, faith is a process of non-thinking. He also stated, all faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Faith is infantile, Dawkins tells us. It can only survive by being crammed into the minds of impressionable young children. Dawkins says, you're an adult. You've grown up. You've moved on. You should reject faith. You no longer need that. He says, why should we believe things that can't be scientifically proved? Faith in God, Dawkins argues, is just like believing in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. When you grow up, you grow out of it. I love this response by Christian professor, Oxford University professor, Alistair McGrath. This is one of the most brilliant people on planet Earth. This dude is so smart. 
This is what he writes. He says, There is no serious empirical evidence that people regard God, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy as being in the same category. He says, I personally stopped believing in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy when I was six years old. After being an atheist until I was 18, I discovered God, and I have never regarded this as some kind of infantile regression. And then he writes this quote. I love this. He says, as I noticed while researching my book, The Twilight of Atheism, a large number of people come to believe in God in later life. When they are grown up, I have yet to meet anyone who came to believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy later in life. Don't you love it? Such a good quote. Now, if you are here this morning or you're watching online, listening, and you're doubting whether Jesus is legit, Man, there are so many folks here, myself included, who would love to talk to you. Jesus rewards every heart that sincerely seeks him. Well, now we come to the chorus. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night, oh, holy night. Oh, hope, oh, night divine. You know, God's love in Christ, seen in Jesus, is a response, is something that needs a response. And falling to our knees in prayer and acceptance is the correct response. The night of Jesus' birth, even though the world didn't recognize it or understand it, or to a large degree notice it, it was a holy night. And at this point in history, we can look back and go, yeah, that's actually the centerpiece of history. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts, by his cradle we stand. And when a person truly meets Jesus Christ, when a person truly grasps what Christmas is all about, the King of Kings coming to earth, being born into complete vulnerability and the neediness of a baby, then that person is in awe of what Christmas truly is. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. He says, We may note in passing that he... Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And if you think about it, no one ever did. Not even from the moment he was born. What were the shepherds like when they finally heard the angels and they said, go, go look at the baby? They were in awe. There was no sense of, oh yeah, big deal, it's a baby, seen lots of those. There was never a sense of anybody in all of Jesus' life and ministry that ever walked away unchanged. Some were mad, some were angry, some hated him, but never one, no one ever left with mild approval. So led by the light of a star, sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger, and all our trials born to be our friend. Placide is picking up on some scripture here, some themes. The phrase in his lyrics, in all of our trials, brings to mind Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
You know, no human being can ever shake their fist at heaven and say, you don't know what it's like down here. Because he does. God knows. God in Christ came to Bethlehem. Jesus lived in experience and according to Hebrews 4.15 was even tempted in every way common to our human experience. Jesus experienced it all. Yet, he never sinned. Jesus knows it. He lived it. And he died for it the evil in people's hearts, to redeem it. And that second phrase, born to be our friend, really reminds me of Jesus' statement in John 15, 15. Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Our friend. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate friend, the friend who will never leave us, never abandon us, never forsake us, no matter what we've done or others have done to us. And then the chorus, he knows our need to our weakness, no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. Behold your king before him lowly bend. Amazing lyrics, I think you'll agree. All right, well, this song actually has a place in history, and I promise to tell you the end of the story. And I want you to challenge you to think about Christmas in a little bit different way this year. I want you to think about how Jesus being born into our world actually changed human dignity, the dignity of all human beings. You see, a new time had come with Jesus, a time when thinking about the hierarchy of society from, a, from the king to a child would begin to shift. You see, all the people in the ancient world had gods and goddesses in whatever little country they were in. Different countries had different names for the, the gods. But what they all shared in common was a very much a hierarchy for all of society and ordering life. At the top of their idea of the hierarchy was the gods and goddesses. Then there was the king. Then there was the people in the court, the royal court, and the priests. And then there was the artisans, the merchants, and the craftspeople. And then finally is the great group of uh, the, the slaves and the general uh, population. And that's sort of how the ancient world thought of all of life, all of society. And the king was supposed to be a god, or in a lot of cultures, he was kind of halfway to being one of the gods. And the king was actually understood to be made in the image of the god who had created him. Peasants and slaves were not made in the image of God. Peasants and slaves were created by inferior gods. And that is what scholars look back and go, that's the dignity gap of the ancient world. The average person was born with a sense of inferiority. And then pastor and author John Ortberg writes this. He says, imagine what it did to the hearts of the dregs of humanity to be told that not just the king, but they too were created in the image of God. 
the image of the one true great God, male and female, slaves and peasants, made in God's image. God said these human beings are to exercise dominion over creation. That's a royal word, but it is no longer reserved for the elite few. Every human being, because of Jesus, is given royal dignity. That's amazing. Jesus came to show us there is one God. He is good, and every human being has been made in his image. Love that. The coming of Jesus began to actually transform the way we think of ourselves and each other. John Orberg says, This was the idea to which the little baby in a manger was heir, which had been given to Israel, which would be clarified and incarnated in his life in a way not seen before. And when every human being is truly aware of that dignity in themselves and in others, the natural result is we begin to treat each other differently. Think of the last stanza of O Holy Night. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. There is no denying, I think, when you look at the whole story, all the lyrics of O Holy Night, that God had a hand in the formulation of this amazing song. God's used it to great effect in our world, and God is still using it today. Now, I had promised to tell you the end of the story. In 1906, there was a young dude named Reginald Fassenden. He was a 33-year-old university professor and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison. And he did something that most people thought at that point in history was impossible. Using a new type of generator, he spoke into a microphone and for the very first time in history, a voice was heard being broadcast over the airwaves. And you know what he chose to read? He chose to open up the Bible and read Luke chapter 2, the story of Jesus' birth. Now, shocked wireless operators on ships, in newspapers, they were only used to hearing Morse code, those little e, 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 those little dots and dashes being played over the airwaves. And for the very first time, they were shocked. They were open-mouthed. Here is a human voice reading the Christmas story. And when he finished reading, he picked up his violin and he played O Holy Night, the very first song in all of history to be played on the radio. And now Ocean View Community Church and all our online watchers, you know the story behind the music. Christ is the Lord, then ever, ever we praise him. His power and glory evermore proclaimed. Amen?